Hi, hello, welcome to the Cordial Catholic Podcast, a podcast for non-Catholics, new Catholics, or those who want to grow deeper in their faith. Every episode will talk about a topic to do with Catholicism and break it down in simple terms and try and learn a little bit more about it. In this, our very first episode, we're talking about scripture and tradition, kind of where my journey into the Catholic Church began as a non-denominational evangelical convert. I hope you enjoy. So I figured as I start this podcast to begin at the beginning of my journey, at least. And my journey began with a question from a Protestant pastor friend of mine. But my real journey as a Christian began a little bit earlier than that. I was about 15 years old when I decided to become a Christian. It was through friends from high school, through their witness, and through beginning to ask some of those bigger questions about life uh, and what the meaning of life was and what my purpose was. And I stumbled into a brand of kind of non-denominational Christianity that really suited me at the time. Um, Along with some high school friends, we were were firm Bible-believing Christians We were the kind of kids who would debate issues of theology uh, at the McDonald's after youth group growing up in high school. I have fond memories of driving uh, in my friend's car to youth group. His mom drove, of course, and uh, blaring DC Talks Jesus Freak on the stereo. We were really on fire for the message of Christ and the Bible and our Christian faith. And... That continued for me up until university, where I uh, stumbled into a student church that met on campus every week on Monday night. It was a vibrant and loud and rowdy kind of worship service with uh, really deep and and, and interesting uh, sermons, and I met a lot of great friends there, friends that I have to this day still, friends that my wife and I made together, and in fact, I we kind of met each other, my wife and I, at that church. Um, I had a car, she didn't, her and her friends had to get there somehow, and so they uh, found me, I think mostly for the car. Um, I was interning at that church at the time when the pastor, who was also a friend of mine, called me into his office. And I can still picture the office very clearly in my mind. I can see the gray walls and his wood desk and the blinds partially drawn and his computer screen glowing. And he sat me down and said to me, what is more uh, important, the Bible or tradition? Anyone schooled in evangelical non-denominational Christianity knows that the answer to any question in Sunday school is either Jesus or the Bible. So answering, you know, quickly, without even really thinking about it, I said, well, of course, it's the Bible. What is this tradition thing? I, 
That wasn't something tradition for me at that time in my faith journey was uh, a taboo word, you know, a, a curse word almost, right? We would talk about the tradition of the Pharisees, these traditions of, of churches that put things in the way of the Bible and of Jesus and of tradition being a bad thing, uh, an inherently bad thing, we would say. So I answered the Bible, but I wasn't off the hook that quickly because my pastor friend turned to me and said, well, who put the Bible together? And and I said, well, what do you mean? Now, here was I, um, at the time I'd been a Christian for a good long time at that point, 10 years or so maybe at that point. And I'd done deep studies. I'd We had Sunday school classes, we called them at my um at my church in high school, where we dug into church history. We talked about these kind of things, but I still really had no idea who put the Bible together, right? I guess I had assumed up to that point that there was some kind of uh, force, some kind of working of the Holy Spirit that drew it together, but I didn't really know the mechanism or the means. So my pastor friend turned to me and said, well, it was the church. It was tradition that put the Bible together. So isn't tradition more important than the Bible? Tradition put that thing together. So that puzzled me. And that was the catalyst really for me slowing down and thinking about what I actually believed and what I knew about what I believed. And what I did then was I began to look at scripture and tradition and how they fit together. What I realized as I began to study uh, the canon of the Bible and how it was put together was that there was this book, here was this book that I believed was infallible. Uh, I would call it at such. And the non-denominational churches I belong to would say the same thing. This Bible is the infallible word of God. And in fact, going even further, these evangelical non-denominational churches I've been a part of would put their entire faith, their entire belief structure came from that Bible, which they would call infallible, the word of God. Uh, All those books belonged in there. They were inspired by God. Uh, written by God, spoken by God through these authors, through Moses, through Matthew, through Mark, through Paul, through Peter, through John. These were the inspired authors of the Bible. And the challenge this Protestant pastor uh, posed to me, tradition versus scripture, made me realize that I didn't actually know why I called those books infallible. What made them infallible? And in fact, there was nothing in the Bible itself which said those books were infallible. Because there's not. There's not a divine table of contents to say these books belonged and they're inspired and these books don't. They're not inspired. Because, of course, when I began to dig into the history of the canon and the history of the Bible, I found that there were books that didn't make the cut and there were books that obviously did make the cut. And so who decided what books were in and what books were out? Uh, What books were 
inspired by God and what books weren't inspired by God, who set that table of contents? Because it wasn't set by the Bible itself. Nothing in the Bible said, this is what belongs in the Bible. So there must have been some outside source, outside body, that had the authority, the ability to say, this is what belongs in here. And that's what my pastor friend was getting at, I think. That tradition was what set the canon, so tradition must hold some kind of authority, or must have held some kind of authority at the time. So I began looking into this, and what I found was that there were a number of different books of the Bible, letters from apostles like Paul, like Peter, like Barnabas, books written by people called John or Matthew or Mark or Luke. There were all these different um, scriptures, these scrolls floating around in ancient Christianity. And they were read in different churches, which makes sense because Paul's epistle to the Corinthians 1 Corinthians or 2 Corinthians were uh, were written to the Corinthian church. They were written to a particular church. So in that church, they would have read Corinthians. They would have read that in their church. It was a letter written to that church community. Okay? So you have all these different church communities with different um, books and letters floating around, and they're reading these different things. And What has to happen at some point is a body of believers has to decide which of these different letters and books we're reading uh, actually fit into what we'll call the the New Testament, the New Covenant canon, our, our new Bible that we're reading, right? So I had to figure out how this happened because this was fundamental for me now. If there was something called tradition that collected the Bible together. I had to know what that was. I had to know how my Bible was formed, how I could trust it, and how I could believe what it said. Because as a non-denominational evangelical Christian, I believed that Bible was infallible. I believed it was the Word of God. I believed that what it said was what helped me to live out my faith and the contents of my faith. But If I didn't understand how it was put together, well, that for me was a big problem. So I began to dig deeper. And here were these different Christian communities with different letters reading different things. And what you see begin to emerge are are lists written by some of the early Christians uh, that talk about what books should be read or what books were being read in their communities. Now, as a non-denominational evangelical Christian, and I think this is the case for a lot of evangelical Christians, my understanding of the history of Christianity kind of went from the time of the apostles and just skipped an enormous amount, say 1,500 years up to the Reformation, and then kept going. So for me, and for a lot of evangelicals I've talked to, this was the case. There was just this great big gap of time where nothing happened, right? The scriptures just maintained the same kind of uh, trajectory. They were stagnant 
for those amount of years up until the Reformation and Martin Luther and the Reformers came uh, onto the scene and kind of changed things. And what I learned, of course, and this is probably for a different podcast, was that wasn't the case, right? There was 1,500 years of church history um, of a church that, it turns out, in my opinion, looked very Catholic and was, in fact, Catholic. But that is for another podcast. The point is, there were this group of people called the early church fathers, the patristic fathers, who wrote about the church canon, who talked about what books they read in their churches and which books were worthy of reading and passing around. And we see, looking back in those writings, um, trends emerging of which books were believed to be infallible and inspired by God. And it's these uh, early church fathers who begin to write about these books. Now, something I objected to early on, because my understanding of how the Bible was formed, what I did understand was it was these kind of groups of Christians, I guessed, who agreed on certain books that belonged. What I found from the first sources that I read, the first Protestant writers that I read, was this idea that these groups of Christians affirmed the canon. So the church at Corinth, those that group of believers affirmed a certain canon of scriptures, certain books and letters that belonged in scriptures. And then the church at Rome agreed on certain books. And the church at Philippi agreed on certain books. And the church at Ephesus agreed on certain books. And it was these early churches kind of independently, these kind of ragtag groups of believers saying, oh, this is what we read. This is authoritative. This is infallible. And it was those kind of scrappy groups of believers who were agreeing on what scripture was. Now, this is also for another podcast, but that wasn't what the early church looked like in a sense right? I mean, think about the letters of Paul. Paul is writing as an authoritative apostle, as an overseer of a church in Corinth or in Ephesus or in Philippi. He's writing from a seat of authority to correct problems that were happening in those churches. Almost all of the New Testament epistles written by Paul and Peter and John Almost all of those epistles are written to solve problems in a church, authoritatively by these apostles and their successors to authoritatively solve problems in the church. So what I gathered, and this is what the, the bulk of scholarship will tell you is, is, is the case, is that it, it wasn't, if we're honest with our scholarship and with our understanding of the New Testament canon, it wasn't these disparate little groups of believers that decided on what belonged in the Bible, and then that became codified. A different way of putting it, maybe, is it wasn't that these books were so popular that they became collected into canon. No, that's not the case. That's entirely backwards, if you look at history. These books were popular because authoritative leadership in these churches, these early churches, affirmed those books as worthy of reading, right? 
That's why we have these early church fathers, these patristic fathers, these very first Christians who were disciples of the apostles, right? Polycarp was the disciple of John. We know this. These early church fathers, in their authority as successors of the apostles, see, this was another problem with my understanding of church history, and this is definitely another podcast, but I'll put it here very briefly. When the apostles died, the, the apostolic age ended, okay? Nobody, nobody became apostles after the apostles, but we have clear, clear and unmistakable evidence from the early church fathers and from non-Christian, non-Catholic sources that these apostles appointed successors. They appointed overseers. And, and that word translates to bishop. Hey, that sounds pretty Catholic, right? So these apostles appointed bishops over the churches they founded, over the churches as they, as they grew, they founded new churches, they established new bishops. And to succeed them, this is called apostolic succession, the apostles appointed these bishops, these overseers of churches. We, we see this with, with Paul and Timothy, Silas. We see this in the New Testament already. And it continues in the writings of the early church. It was these bishops, okay, these bishops of the early churches who were affirming in their writings which books were worthy of reading. This is where our collections of the earliest New Testament canons come from. This is how we know what books were being read in these churches and which books the Christians considered authoritative and infallible early on. Because these bishops, these authoritative figures in the early Christian church, were writing about them were saying which books were authoritative. So it's entirely backwards to think that the books became authoritative or became seen as infallible or became part of the New Testament canon because they were popular. They were popular because these authoritative leaders said these books were worthy of reading and passing around. The early church wasn't this ragtag group of believers. It, it was, in a sense, a ragtag group of believers. But there was a clear authoritative structure in place from the very beginning, right? From the very beginning, we look at the letters of Paul, James, Peter, John. We look at these letters and see an authoritative structure forming very early on from the apostles and then their successors right afterwards. A generation removed, we see these apostles, successors, these early church fathers writing in very similar language, very similar style, about very similar issues. Okay? So, when I began to see this, I began to be faced with a bit of a dilemma in my mind. Because... Here was a Bible that I took to be infallible, that I took to be the sole rule of my faith, that I took to be what presented everything I needed to know about my faith uh, in between these two covers. But the question that the Protestant pastor asked me 
really began to challenge my thinking of what I knew of the Bible. That it was put together by a tradition. So then, what was the role of this tradition in the rest of my faith? And that follows. If the tradition put together the Bible, then what happened to that tradition? If the tradition said another way, if the tradition had the authority to put the Bible together, then what happened to the authority of that tradition? That's kind of what I began to think. So it was in 397, I think, at the Council of Carthage, where the canon of the New Testament that we understand today, that we use today, that all Christian Bibles affirm today, uh, was put together. So the Council of Carthage, 397. So, I mean, that presented to me some problems initially, and this is also for another podcast. (laughs) There are a lot of things for future podcasts, but one question I had was, well, then what happened for almost 400 years if there was no Bible? Imagine a country existing for 400 years with no constitution, no law, no rules. How does that work? So there was where tradition must have played some kind of role, in my mind. But that's for another podcast. (laughs) That can be our catchphrase, maybe, for this podcast. That's for another podcast. But for this podcast, we're talking about the Council of Carthage. So 397, the Council of Carthage. Okay? Now... This, even Christianity today, in their Bible timeline, which you can Google, will indicate the Council of Carthage in 397 as what authoritatively put together the canon of the New Testament. So, I found this, and I had to ask myself, well, what gave that council the authority? Who was at that council? What was that council? I had grown to understand that these these bishops, these successors of the apostles, had been writing about what books were authoritative, what books were infallible, what books were worthy of being read and passed around in their churches. It wasn't these, these believers, this disparate group of believers at different churches who read books and letters and they became popular and passed around. It was their leadership that affirmed those things as being worthy of being passed around. Otherwise, they would have been they would have been squelched. There are many examples. This isn't a podcast to dig in deeply in church history. There are lots of podcasts for that, but there are examples of books being squelched because or books being put down because they weren't worthy of being read. There are lots of those examples. These books were were affirmed as being worthy of being read by successors of the apostles, not by groups of believers who made those books popular. Okay, so what happened then at the Council of Carthage? Well, in response to heretical groups of Christians who were saying, ma, these books don't belong, or these books should be added, or um, the the heresy of Arianism, which sought to add, you know, the, the Arians sought to add a lot of books to the Bible that they thought should be in there, that would affirm their their beliefs, and their understanding of who Jesus was. So you see this down through church history, 
right? And this is something I didn't understand. And of course, this is something for another podcast. But the church comes together often not to, not not solely to form their doctrine or dogma or beliefs, but in response to something that's forcing them to define something. So, for example, early church councils that affirmed Jesus's divinity and spelled out how we understand him to be divine, Council of Nicaea, for example, were were called in response to Christians who were trying to promote beliefs of Jesus or understandings of Jesus's nature, which were contrary to what everyone believed. So these councils formed in response to heresy or in response to improper belief, and then would affirm what they believed. So the Council of Carthage um, came about in response to Christians in the early church who were misusing the Bible, who were affirming books that belonged in the canon that the authority of the church did not recognize. So the authority of the church had to sit down and say, okay, here are the books. We're going to write down a list of what books belong. We're going to pass these around in the churches that are believing churches, that are Christian churches, that are orthodox, that believe what the church has always believed. So the council wanted to set down that guideline for all the Christian faithful. And so if this narrative of groups of believers reading books and books becoming popular and the canon being formed because they picked the most popular books, this kind of movement of the populace, if that's true, well then who was at the Council of Carthage? Was it was it the Catholic faithful? Was it the the laity, the the believing Christians? And we find that in fact it wasn't. Who was at the Council of Carthage were the bishops, the successors of the apostles, who then by the year three ninety seven traced their lineage from the apostles down through their successors, down through their successors, and we have these clear lines of succession actually of these early Christian bishops, these early leaders in the church. And who it was at the Council of Carthage, remember, a council that even Christianity today affirms as what set the New Testament canon, who was at that council? It was these bishops, these bishops who existed in a church that that had this authority structure that traced its beginnings back to Christ when Christ said, I'm going to form my church on this rock. These, these bishops who we see existing in a church that looked very Catholic. And that's what I realized as I looked into the history of the canon. That's where this question from the Protestant pastor ended me up. Does that make sense? That's a really weird sentence. Ended me up. That's where I ended up, based on that question from the Protestant pastor. He sat me down in his office and asked me what's more important, the Bible or tradition. And I I said the Bible. But as I began to study the formation of the canon, I realized that there was this tradition that put the Bible together. This authoritative tradition, in fact. 
in this line of apostles and then bishops and then their successors. And it was these bishops in this authoritative structure of a church that at the Council of Carthage affirmed the canon, right? And there were, I'm not trying to brush over bumps along the way in church history. If you study the formation of the canon, you'll see there are times when there were disagreement. There are multiple lists of authoritative texts floating around. There's disagreement on what books belonged. Why wasn't the epistle of Barnabas included? Why weren't some of the letters of Polycarp included? Or uh, Ignatius of Antioch, who was uh, a disciple of John? Why weren't these things included? We find churches reading different books and affirming, and we find some figures in the early church history affirming different canons, which was why, and, and that's, not, that's not to say that that didn't happen, that did happen, but that makes all the more sense, and I mentioned this, of why the Council of Carthage had to happen. And it, it kind of underscores my point, I think, because there, hey, there were different books, different lists of books floating around, and the church in its authority that it traced back to Jesus through the succession of the apostles, the church in its authority affirmed what books belonged. It wasn't these disparate groups of believers. It wasn't just the most popular books that floated to the top, right? The chaff fell away and the most popular books floated to the top. It, it wasn't that that was the case, because there were plenty of popular books in certain chur- churches that didn't make the cut. It was the authority of the church that affirmed the canon. And that, that's a fact of history, I found. Okay? So, this is where it led me. Dale Alquist is a famous uh, G.K. Chesterton biographer. And G.K. Chesterton, if you don't know, was uh, a 20th century uh, Catholic convert. He was a, a man of the people. He was an eloquent writer, theologian, philosopher, kind of a jack-of-all-trades, Renaissance man, maybe you'd call him, and just a prolific writer and commentator on British society in the 20th century. And he was a rather famous agnostic who became a Catholic. And Alquist, in one of his essays, I think it comes from, on Chesterton, kind of paints a picture of how Chesterton's own conversion happened. And if you want to read a great book by Chesterton about his conversion, it's called Catholic Church and Conversion. I think, by G.K. Chesterton. And Alquist writes about Chesterton's conversion. And this reading this really painted a picture which resonated with, with me when I, when I first heard it. And it goes like this. So Chesterton is watching a Catholic procession pass by in the street. And he sees first some, some Catholics walking with candles down the street. And he says, oh, that's bosh. That's rubbish. Candles. We don't need candles in our church. And next comes a statue of a saint or a painting of a saint that's being carried. And he says, oh, that's bosh. That's rubbish. We don't need, we don't need that. 
And then he sees come by uh, some icons, maybe, being carried by. And he says, oh, it's Bosch. That's rubbish. And next, the incense comes. There's a, there's a priest or an acolyte or a deacon carrying a, some incense and waving it back and forth. And he says, oh, that's, that's Bosch. That's Bosch. And then comes maybe our Eucharistic Lord. So the Eucharist, the... Um, what this is of course for another podcast <laughs> but what catholics believe is is the actual body blood soul and divinity of christ in in the elements of the eucharist in communion so next maybe that comes next in a monstrance because that was that would have been a common thing to see is this is this communion wafer which becomes christ being carried down the street okay and then and, and chesterton says ah oh, that's that's bosh right? That's rubbish. And then finally comes the priest carrying over his head in his hands this great big gold gilded hard-covered Bible. And Chesterton says, oh, well, that's it. There we go. That's the thing. And what Alquist comments on is, is how ludicrous is this idea, right? And that resonated deeply with me. This, the candles in the Catholic Church, the incense, the saints, the understanding of what the Eucharist is, all these Catholic traditions, the way of understanding the Catholic faith. The Catholics got all that wrong. That's all rubbish. But hey, the Catholic Church in its authority, the same authority that said, you know, Praying to the saints makes sense. Using incense makes sense. Candles are, are, are beautiful. <laughs> Jesus is really present in the Eucharist. The Catholic Church that affirmed all those things, it got all those things wrong. This is what Alquist imagines Chesterton thinking. But somehow that same church that got all those things wrong got the Bible right. Even R.J. Spruill, a prominent Protestant theologian says that at best, if we don't recognize the authority of the Catholic Church, that was the early church. The early church was the Catholic Church in a succession of bishops. That continues to today. If we don't affirm the authority of that church to affirm the books of the New Testament, what belongs, what doesn't belong, if we don't recognize their authority at the Council of Carthage, Sproul says, at best we have an, a fallible list of infallible books. Okay? So if we're not going to recognize the authority of the church to affirm the canon, then all we can say is, well, if they don't have the authority to affirm the canon, if they're not if they're they don't have some kind of infallible authority. Well, we have these infallible books then, but we can't trust they're the right books. Maybe the list of books, maybe the table of contents is infallible. Well, then you're opening up the canon of scripture two thousand years later to anything. Right? What I recognized when I began to follow the thread that that Protestant pastor tugged on, and all I can think of now is that Weezer song, but that's besides the point. That's not for another podcast. What, what, 
when I began to follow that thread, though, is I began to see that there must be some kind of seat of authority that had the ability to say which books belonged and which books didn't. And if that authority also said, well, Jesus was present in the Eucharist, praying to saints is is a, a worthy and venerable practice. If this tradition had the authority to affirm the canon of Scripture, then either we must say that that authority somehow ended, and how do we arbitrarily set that target, or that that authority must still exist. Because there's nothing in the Bible that says what books belong in the Bible. And there's nothing in the Bible that says this authority existed long enough to affirm these books and then stopped somehow. So we must wrestle with what was that outside authority? And what does it mean that it must exist today or must have gone away? That was the challenge that I was suddenly confronted with. And that's what Alquist means when he says that it's all rubbish, it's all bosh, except for the scriptures. How can that be? How can we trust in the authority of a church that gets everything wrong except for the Bible? There's something going on there, right? And that's where I kind of landed on that topic. And that's when I began to look at what the Catholic Church actually believed from actual Catholic believers. And that's when I found that what I thought I knew about the Catholic Church and the authority and that tradition that set down the Bible was kind of backwards. And my prejudices, my mistaken beliefs began to be dismantled. That, of course, is for another podcast. Thanks for listening to this, our my first episode of the Cordial Catholic Podcast. I really hope you enjoyed it. I'm going to have fun working on this podcast. Um, if you have questions, I'd love to answer them. You can check me out on Facebook. Uh, I'm Cordial Catholic on Facebook. I blog at www.thecordialcatholic.com and you can email me at cordialcatholic at gmail.com. Listen, if you like this podcast, I would love your support. Um, it's not free to host this podcast, to be honest. It costs about $12 a month, which isn't a lot. So if I can find 12 people to donate $1 a month on a regular basis... Um, this podcast would be fully funded. I'm not looking to make any money off this podcast. Um, I don't look to make any money off my writing or anything I do, really. It's a hobby. It's a passion. It's, I think, a calling. And I would love it if you like this podcast, if you like the work that I do on my blog, uh, if you want to support me a little bit. Honestly, it takes 12 people to give $1 a month to make this thing fully funded and fully sustainable. And I would really appreciate that. Any extra money, go to our kids' education. And we appreciate that too. So, thanks a lot. Thanks for listening to the first episode of the Cordial Catholic Podcast. And please do share it with your friends. Let me know what you think. And uh, subscribe in iTunes 
Google Play Music, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever else you get your podcasts. Thank you so much and God bless. This show is brought to you in a special way by our co-producer patrons over at patreon.com slash cordialcathy. A special thanks to Ellie and Tom, Kelvin and Susan, Stephen, Suzanne and Victor, Phil, Noah, Nicole, Michelle, Jordan, John, James, Gina, and Aram for your special support at the co-producer tier and making this thing possible. You guys are fantastic. God bless and thanks for your support.